Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If. Only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. This royal throne of kings... This sceptered isle, this earth of majesty, this seat of Mars, this other Eden, demi-paradise, this fortress built by nature for herself against infection on the hand of war, this happy breed of men, this little world, this precious stone set in the silver sea which serves it in the office of a wall or as a moat defensive to a house against the envy of less happier lands. This blessed plot, this earth, this realm, this England, this nurse, This teeming womb of royal kings, feared by their breed and famous for their birth, renowned for their deeds as far from home for Christian service and true chivalry as is the sepulchre in stubborn jury of the world's ransom, blessed Mary's son. This land of such dear souls... (laughs) This dear, dear land, dear for her reputation through the world, is now leased out. I die pronouncing it. Hello and welcome to The Plays of Thing, Act Two of William Shakespeare's Richard II. My name is Tim McIntosh. And I'm Heidi White. You just heard Michael Pennington playing the role of John Gaunt in the Royal Shakespeare Company's production of Richard II. Famous, gorgeous speech, a patriotic speech in praise of England. And Heidi, that leads off our show. But before we start talking about John Gaunt's beautiful praise of England, tell me about your Thanksgiving. 
you we were all in kind of like we were we were in COVID Thanksgiving. What did you guys do? Yeah, it has been, you know, a there's so many hard things about this COVID year. So, so, so many hard things. And actually, this particular time as we head into the holidays has felt kind of heavy because we we do so many holiday things. Like I want to take Lucy to the Nutcracker and I want to go mm. ice skating in the park and, you know, those kinds of things that are shut down right now and restaurants that we eat in like as, you know, traditional traditionally as family or whatever, but Thanksgiving was lovely. Usually we have big family Thanksgivings, which are wonderful, but it was so nice to just, it was just the four of us, uh, Scott and I and our kids. And I cooked the whole meal, which is so fun. I love holiday cooking. And when you have a big family Thanksgiving, a lot of times you just get to make one or two things, you know, like sweet potatoes and rolls. And, but this time I got to make all of it. Um, and that was just so, so wonderful. And then we had just a couple of friends over for dessert and champagne. And so it was like peaceful and refreshing and kind of that gathering cozy feeling. And there wasn't any pressure on the day. So we actually had a lovely time. How about you, Tim? My brother and sister-in-law came down from Washington, D.C. My sister came over. My aunt came over. She's in Atlanta uh, with us. So it was the three siblings, sister-in-law, aunt, plus mom and dad. And we, my mom and dad have this beautiful screened in porch on the back of their house and it's surrounded by some woods in their um, suburban neighborhood. And the temperature, we, we wanted to do all of it out there just, you know, because of COVID safety reasons. But we were also worried, you know, it's November. Are we going to get a 50 degree day and be chilly the whole time? No, we had 65 degrees. I think actually Thanksgiving day, I think was get up to 72 degrees. So we spent almost the whole day out on the screen in portion. It was great. And to make things additionally great, we ordered all of our food out, which all the chefs, all the cooks in my family were really relieved about that. We have really good, I I kind of sometimes feel a little guilt on Thanksgiving because I don't do much preparation I'm more of like the bat boy at a baseball game. I supply the tools. <laughs> I don't really go to the plate until it's time to eat <laughs> to kind of like twist the metaphor a little bit. My brother and sister-in-law own a restaurant in DC. Wow. Meatsandfoods.com. If anyone who listens to us uh, cares to visit their wonderful restaurant about one mile Sounds from the amazing. Capitol building. It's great. So they are obviously really gifted with spatulas and spins. My sister also, (laughs) my mom and dad also. So I'm kind of the guy, like too many cooks in the kitchen. I'm the guy who excuses himself and I try to make the coffee in the morning and do the other odds and ends that the real stars can shine. And then I just back out. I just get out of the way, get out of everybody's way. It's like the biggest service that I can do. That's actually a wonderful service. My husband did that yesterday. He did make the turkey. We did a sous vide turkey, which was fun. First time we've ever done that. It was great. Um, But he did all the dishes while I was cooking and he took the trash out and he swept the floors. Right. You got to have that guy. Well, it just made the day so easy. Then I could just cook and I like things really clean in the kitchen. And so I'll like stop between dishes and do all, you know, between Mm. preparing a dish and clean all the dishes and it takes twice as long. Um, But anyway, so that particular service is 
just as important as the cook, I think, in the kitchen. Yeah. So anyway, but it sounds like you, had, myself. you brought food in. And I actually felt a little guilty about preparing everything because this is the year to support small businesses that are making pies and all that kind of thing. And so I think what you did is really lovely to, to um, provide that for small businesses who are, you know, struggling during COVID. So yeah. anyway, and it's anyway, all that. we spent a lot of time talking about this, but it was great. And I hope everybody, <laughs> I hope all of our listeners had wonderful Thanksgivings and were able to adapt and pivot in this crazy year. And, you know, we're all in it together. So Heidi, we um, rejoin our play after act one. Act one begins in, in a kind of a curious courtroom scene in which Richard II, our, let's call him our protagonist, he's not going to really be our hero, is adjudicating right. between a couple of noblemen. The most important of these noblemen being Bolingbroke, who is going to become our protagonist's chief adversary. Now, in Act Two, um, that audio that we just heard from John of Gaunt, one of the most famous speeches, probably the most famous speech from this play, and one of the most famous mm -hmm. speeches from the history play. John Gaunt is really worried about Richard II, about Richard II's policies, um, and he almost sings this beautiful ode about this precious stone set in the silver sea, which serves in it in the office of a wall or as a moat defensive to a house. He gives this long, glowing praise of the island of England, who kind of has these natural defenses set up. The English Channel is a moat by which armies can't attack this beautiful, precious stone set in the silver scene. Um, and yet, John Gaunt sees that England is in tremendous trouble, and the trouble is not from without. The trouble is from within. Heidi, what is John Gaunt worried about? Yeah, this is, you know, it's funny about this play. It is in some ways a very simple play. It's about how a king gets dethroned and usurped by his cousin. Uh, but on, but the machinations behind the scenes are very, very complex. And Shakespeare, although he does take some liberties with the history, uh, which I'm happy to talk about some of those little things if we want to, if that it becomes relevant. But most of the time, it's not that relevant because he does stick pretty close to the actual events of history, which means there's a lot of characters. It means there's a lot of behind the scenes. There's a lot of, uh, uh, there's a very complex kind of interweaving of personalities and events that take place in order to get Richard off the throne and Bolingbroke installed. Um, and Gaunt, John of Gaunt is, Richard's, just as a recap, as you're asking for, John of Gaunt is the is Richard II's uncle, um, and he is the father of Bolingbroke, who is about to, in this particular act, become the rival of Richard II. Bolingbroke has been banished. Um, there's some question about whether he deserved it or whether it was just Richard trying to get uh, a political enemy or potential enemy out of the way. Um, and so that's part of what Gaunt 
is right. holding on to here. Uh, the other part is about money, as everything always is, right? Um, comes down to money because Richard has overstepped the law, and that's really important. And he's about to do it even more in this scene, Act Two, Scene One. But he already has overstepped English law into taking money from the nobles to finance a foreign war, which he's trying to do in order to gain money and to gain favor from the populace. So Richard thinks he's a wildly unpopular king, even at this point, he's extravagant um, and he is very close to megalomania. Um, Mm. And so has he uh, he has already overstepped by heavily taxing the English people and the nobles uh, and using that money to form a glittering court while people are starving and also to finance his wars, which he's doing in order to increase his popularity um, and to gain p- more power and money outside the, the bounds of England, um, which is interesting because the particular boundaries of England, um, being an island surrounded by water, are highlighted in the speech of John of Gaunt. Do you want to comment mm on that i love the synopsis that you gave of the political situation i do want to comment but i want to shift Mm -hmm. gears to the actual construction of the speech like the actual literary construction of the speech it's such a gorgeous speech and and as i was listening to it I, i found myself kind of leaning forward in anticipation throughout the beginning of the speech in search of something. And after I heard the speech, I thought, why was that leaning forward so much? Why, why did Shakespeare, how did Shakespeare create this kind of sense of need and what was I needing? So I stepped back <laughs> and I read the speech really slowly. The speech, Heidi, is so fascinating. It includes, you know what? I'm gonna let you guess, actually. It includes a lot of prepositional phrases, right? A whole lot of prepositional phrases. So I'm just going to read a few of them. Or as a moat defensive to a house, against the envy of less happier lands, this blessed plot, this earth, this realm, this England, this nurse, this teeming womb of royal kings, feared by their breed and famous by their birth, renowned for their deeds as far as from home, for Christian service and true chivalry. It just piles prepositional phrase upon prepositional phrase. And what I discovered when I was looking hard at it was he, you want to know how many prepositional phrases he puts up before he gives us a verb, Heidi? Do you want to like take a wild guess? I don't know. Five? 46. 46. I was way <laughs> off. <laughs> 46 prepositional phrases. I mean, it's a rough count. And some of them are sub-phrasings on, upon, you know, they're kind of like existing below another prepositional phrase. But 46 of them before he gets to the verb. And what's so fun is that the verb from John Gaunt, after all of these prepositional praise, phrases in praise of England, the whole um, monologue pivots when we get to the verb. So this is just me being nerd boy about England's, I mean, the English language's greatest writer. 46 46 prepositional, prepositional phrases, 
And then I want you to listen to the pivot when he lands the verb. So I'm just going to read a few more. For Christian service in true chivalry, as is the sepulcher in stubborn jewelry of the world's ransom, blessed Mary's son, this land of such dear souls, this dear, dear land, dear for her reputation through the world is now leased out. I die pronouncing it. All of this praise and then the verb arrives is now leased out. I die pronouncing it. It's just like every once in a while, you got to step back and say, this is the master at work. This is Shakespeare like doing something. Whoever would dream of doing 46 prepositional phrases before landing with a verb and not just landing with a verb, but pivoting the entire momentum and content of the speech when we arrive at that verb is now leased out. Richard Hmm. II has undermined this beautiful, beautiful place by basically putting it up for rent, making it kind of a tenement shack. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And that's John of Gaunt. You know, he's presented so positively in this play. He is, you know, you, you mentioned that, um, Richard really isn't our hero by any means mm-hmm. at all. Although some readers are more sympathetic to him, and that's worth uh, that's worth addressing at some point in teaching this play and reading this play and in watching this play, um, because he's he does have kind of the weight of this divine right of kings behind him, and John of Gaunt knows that. Um, and uh, but he also. Uh, John of God is lamenting in this speech the fact that the king uh, mm-hmm. with the divine right is so unworthy of the weight of his leadership because he is squandering this sceptered isle, right? He is mm. taking this jewel uh, geographically on the face of the earth. Um, and what I referenced earlier before I leave our listeners hanging too much um, is that uh it's a big deal in this speech that England is an island and surrounded by water, um, therefore impregnable from attack. Um, it's very hard to attack England because it is a sceptered isle, right? It's an island and it has, he refers to the moat as being like a wall against invaders. Um, and the implication of that is that God, you know, again, we have this medieval belief in the divine uh, intervention and everything. Everything's intentionally made by God in mm-hmm. a certain way. Um, and, and England then has been set apart as a special country by God. Um, bec- and, and the manifestation of that is that it is an island impregnable to attack. And so therefore it's special. It's set apart. It's different from other countries like France, who was England's enemy here. Um, right. And your point about the prepositional phrases in the literary construction, the form kind of supports this idea of the content that this idealized land, this patriotic speech that that praises the virtues of England, uh, not only because it, he is an Englishman and therefore loves his country, uh, but also it's the reason he loves his country, those speech claims, is because it's better than other countries and right. God made it better than other countries countries on purpose. And so how special it is to be an Englishman and how much more than special is to be a king of such a land 
And then to be given such a king who is so unworthy of it, taxing his people, squandering the wealth of the nation, um, and and going out to fight a war uh, by robbing his nobles and the commoners, uh, how unworthy is that? And then the question that John of Gaunt is raising here without actually raising it, although he does it a little bit, he does in fact, accuse the king um, mm-hmm. to his face. Uh, but in the speech, he's almost he's he's really only raising the question and hinting around: Is such a king worthy? And what are we then to do if he is not? The the loyalty that John of Gaunt and later the Duke of York will give to this idea of the divine right of kings. I find so admirable in both of them. They both look on Richard II as failing his task of being a bad king. And yet both of them have such a fealty to the idea that God put Richard II there, that they are very, very reluctant to ever plot against him. And They're even reluctant to endorse Bolingbroke, who is openly, will be later, openly plotting against Richard II. And I find both those characters, the Duke of York and here, John of Gaunt, really admirable, even though um, I think this play really calls into question the feasibility of the divine right of kings. And in that, that idea has gone by the wayside for reasons that <laughs> we can spend we can spend a long time talking right. about. Um, Absolutely, Heidi. I want to. Um, I just want to make a passing comment. What, what we have both mentioned about John of Gaunt praising England is special. It, it seems to have this moat around it, um, the Atlantic Ocean, that keeps it from its natural land-born enemies. Um, I've been thinking about how scary it was in World War II for um, Londoners especially to be facing potential bombing from Hitler's Luftwaffe. And, and I, I, because England is so geographically protected, I wonder if the people of England, I wish Sarah James here, I could just ask her directly. I wonder if the people of England, of London, um, were kind of facing this enemy that had technological capacity to actually inflict harm on their land without crossing the English Channel on the ocean by crossing it in the air. And I've, and I've thought about, you know, the United States in a lot of ways, our natural enemies are separated from us by huge bodies of water. And I think the London bombing during World War II maybe felt a little bit like what 9-11 felt like for us. We kind of didn't think we were touchable. Sure, Japan bombed California in World War II, but it didn't feel like this devastating attack on one of our major you know, economic and cultural centers like 9-11 was. And so I think there is something, it's easy if you are living in England to have the sense that England is a very special place because it has these natural defenses built up around it. It has 
these barriers from its arch enemy of France and from whoever else might try to come across the English Channel, you know? And I think that's good. so that, yeah, and, and that gives rise, just as you said, to the sense that John Gaunt and other, others have in England that, well, we're not just defensed well, but we're defensed well for a reason. We are unique. And now this guy is just flushing it down the toilet. Exactly. How, yes. how shocking it must be. Yeah. Yes, that's that's exactly his claim. And I, I like what you're saying about World War II because it speaks to the relevance of Shakespeare in every generation. He raises these questions about patriotism, about uh, the how God made the world, the cosmos. Like there's there's so much uh, to explore, uh, even in modern times. Um, and throughout history that are brought up in these history plays. And I want to add one more layer to that. And that is Shakespeare in his own time. This play was first performed. It was written and performed in 1595. um, And which would have been during the reign of Queen Elizabeth, seven years after what historical event, uh, the Spanish Armada. Um, And Mm. before the Spanish Armada attacked this like vast fleet of ships that came from Spain, which was the most powerful country in Europe uh, and Spain's coming against England, which was at the time a, uh, at best a second rate power uh, and also riddled from within with uh, the civil war that, and, and conflict that had an unrest that had come from the English reformation. And there's, uh, in Spain's mind, an extremely weak ruler on the throne of England, a woman and an unmarried woman who's not, who doesn't have an heir and is part of the, uh, even at, still at the time, although a growing minority, a powerful minority, still a religious minority as a Protestant uh, in England. And so this was a no brainer for Spain. They're just going to send this fleet of ships, you know, whatever, doesn't matter that it's the scepter Isle. We are going to defeat them. Um, which not a lot of, of um, European powers bothered to do because England was surrounded by this moat of this wall of water um, and wasn't that much desired because it was such a second-rate power. So here comes Spain uh, in this no-brainer attack. They are going to win. There's no question in anybody's mind, even in the mind of the English people, they know that Spain is going to win this this attack. And and instead, in this blaze of glory, Queen Elizabeth defeats the Spanish Armada Mm. in this completely unexpected victory at sea. There is no earthly reason why she should have won this battle, but she does. Therefore, establishing England as a growing power and firmly establishing Elizabeth on the throne and covering her with glory for the rest of her reign um, mm. and announcing her as worthy, very worthy of the, of the, th- of the crown. Um, and so all of that would have been right fresh on the minds of, uh, of the English audience who are watching the Shakespearean performance. Um, the question of the worthiness of the ruler, the question of the sceptered isle and it's, uh, it's, just this great uh, favor in the eyes of God um, and of man. Uh, And so that adds another layer of meaning to this very, very patriotic speech, which which Shakespeare has put uh, in the mouth of this most worthy character in this particular play. Um, Heidi, I want to step in with like just a little historical oddity about the Spanish Armada's invasion of, or or, um, battle with the English fleet, there's a contemporary of Shakespeare. He is a little bit younger than Shakespeare, a um, philosopher, Thomas Hobbes. 
So the Calvin and Hobbes comic that a lot of people still love and adore, the Hobbes character was named after Thomas Hobbes, English philosopher, roughly a contemporary with Shakespeare. What does that have to do with the Spanish Armada and the English fleet? The story is that when the Spanish Armada sailed to attack England, Thomas Hobbes, then less than a year old, a baby in his wet nurse's arms, was um, his wet nurse heard that the Armada was sailing at England and was so terrified that she dropped little baby Thomas Hobbes, dropped him on his head, as a matter of fact. And there's this kind of this funny explanation that Thomas Hobbes, whose philosophy is notoriously pessimistic, like really, really pessimistic, um, that he was born into this kind of like fearful state of the Spanish Armada about to attack England. And it just kind of afflicted him for the rest of his life. I just love the story that like, it all came from this bump on his head when he was dropped by his wetness. <laughs> That's great. That's great. I love it. Um, the, we talked in the first episode that there are two plots happening in this play. The main plot is what I'm calling, or what we've called, the crime plot. It's the plot that's basically, when we sit down to watch the play, it's the plot that is most easy to follow. Who's to blame for the murder of Gloucester? That's the first question that kind of proposes itself to the audience and to the crown. Bolingbroke has accused Thomas of Mowbray, but a lot of people are like, hey, but actually Richard II had something to do with it. So that plot unfolds throughout the play, and it's seen as an injustice that is not worthy of a king. Richard I, perhaps he should be deposed because he's such a bad king involved in all this heinous crime. The second plot, the metaphysical plot, is this kind of question that is everywhere in this play. The whole play is clothed in it. The metaphysical plot is, is it wrong to shed the blood of a king who was placed upon the throne by God? And Heidi, for me, I just see that question. This is, again, part of what makes Shakespeare just so wonderful is he introduces that play through his character's beliefs over and over and over again. So we see little glimpses of it in the first uh, act, but we also see it again later on uh, in act two, specifically with the Duke of York. The Duke of York, I'm just going to read a few of his lines. But if I could, by him that gave me life, that's God, by him that gave me life, I would attach you all and make you stoop unto the sovereign mercy of the king. But since I cannot be it known to you, I do remain as neuter. So York, who on the one hand openly acknowledges Richard II is a problem, but now he goes to those who would dethrone Richard II and he says, look, he was put there by God. He's a sovereign. I cannot change what God has done. And so I'm caught between these two spaces. God put him on the throne. I know that he's doing wrong. And so what the Duke of York does is he says, I do remain as neuter. 
he's an independent. He's kind of in some ways trying to be um, neutral between these two large, I don't know, ideologies, I suppose. Right. My question for you, Heidi, is this. You love teaching this play. I sure do. To high school students. Um, this notion of the divine right of kings is foreign, I assume, to most of your students. How do you prepare them to absorb it within the pages of these plays? Oh, great question. Um, I think that it is in general foreign to the American mind that a leader will be, you know, should and ought to be placed on the throne, not by merit, but by divine right, and that they can do with that power what they will, um, and that God would support even injustice and tyranny from the king because it is his just divine right to rule. Um, that's a completely foreign idea to the to the American mind. It's not, however, a com- a completely foreign idea to the Christian mind, right. um, and I. Th- think there's still enough of that kind of a legacy of uh, the faith and the idea of um, uh, that enough of the idea that God himself, that his ways are mysterious ways beyond us, right? There's enough of that. And he has a hand. Him. Yeah. Yes. Like Romans 13, he has a hand in putting the ruler on the throne. Yes. Um, and we see that especially, so I think especially for students who have been catechized in the faith, this isn't a super foreign idea, right. um, but it's still a controversial idea, right? It's something that students can wrap their minds around, especially looking at the Old Testament. And, and it becomes, I think, in some ways, then a theological question, which is what it would yeah. have been in the time of Shakespeare. And it certainly would have been that way in the time of um, the earlier time in the 14th century, in which the these events were actually unfolding. Um, and uh, this, this actually was very relevant to Shakespeare's time. There's a, there's a very famous story about Queen Elizabeth storming out of a performance of this play saying, know ye really? not, I am Richard. This is what this, no is, way. this is in the historical record that she hated this play. She ran out of this play. She stormed out and said, "No, ye not, I am Richard," because she understood exactly what you're saying. That Shakespeare is raising questions about the divine right of rulers, and you know, the heavy is the head that wears the crown. Thus, the idea of the sword of Damocles kind of hanging over these rulers, um, and. And a wise ruler, this is one of the things that Shakespeare brings up over and over and over and over again in his plays, is this, even if there is a divine right of kings, given given that there might be such a thing, mm-hmm. is it still the responsibility of a ruler to rule wisely and to set aside his desires for the sake of his duty as the king? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And that, I think, is the question that John of Gaunt is wrestling with uh, as a courtier and saying, what is my role here? Ought I to challenge the king? And he doesn't do it until he's on his deathbed. And even in doing that, his, he's assured by Northumberland that the king will listen to him because there's something special about the words of a dying man, right? And of course, Richard completely spurns him 
uh, and right. threatens him, threatens his life. Uh, and then they kind of get into it. But it's really dangerous to mess with a king. Uh, it's really dangerous to to challenge a king. Uh, and Shakespeare appears to be raising not only the metaphysical question of the divine right of kings, but of what it means to be a true leader if you do wear the crown. Right, right. And, this- and I think that becomes more and more... Uh, evident as as the play goes on when we have Richard, who's clearly unworthy of kingship. But on the other hand, you have Bolingbroke, who, see, who does not have the nobility of his father. He's a pragmatist. He's mm-hmm. very Machiavellian. And so we do have this battle between, uh, not that Bolingbroke is unworthy. He actually is a very good leader. And we see that right away. He's much more. Uh, he's a much better leader than Richard, but he is not a noble man like his father. And that's what I love right. about Shakespeare in the in the history plays is that he doesn't. We don't ever get to see what Shakespeare thinks. We never yeah. know what he thinks about this. He does this really cool thing, which I like to call the point counterpoint within the within the history plays. He brings up a point, and you're like, "Yeah, I agree with that. Richard should be off the throne." And then there's a counterpoint to it. Oh, but really, Bolingbroke. Like who uh-huh. is just such <laughs> such a pragmatist and such a manipulator, and you couldn't give us like, a star. You couldn't give us like a right. well polished like, exactly like this is man not of integrity. No, this is this is this is not you know what's that what's that movie about Pandora? What's that movie? What's it's just like such propaganda between what you're supposed to think. They just give you this heroic people, and you know like there's Shakespeare doesn't do that. He doesn't. Right. He doesn't do that he oh it's avatar that i'm thinking of right yeah like, that that there's like the big bad man there's the the, the big military bad corporate military power. guys yeah. and that are you know oppressing this poor people uh, that are clearly the heroes it's not yeah. that it is with shakespeare it's much more complex it's much more nuanced it's much more subtle and i think much more human and way better than giving us a propaganda piece it's just here's one point what do you think? And then here's another point. What do you think about this? And he doesn't resolve it for you. And I love that. I do too. I do too. I, to, to point counterpoint, to kind of piggyback on that, um, Romans 13 in the Christian New Testament, it seems so clear. It seems so crystal clear. Like in the opening section of that chapter, let everyone be subject to the governing authorities. There is no authority except that which God has established. The authorities that exist have been established by God. Consequently, whoever rebels against the authority is rebelling against God, what God has instituted, and those who do so will bring judgment on themselves. Like, there it is, crystal clear. And then you think, okay, but hold on. Rahab in the Old Testament who lives in the city of Jericho, who goes into the hall of faith in Hebrews 11 as one of the people from the Old Testament that is just esteemed as absolutely exemplary in their faith. Rahab basically violates Romans 13 from the, the, her first, in, like the first time we meet her in the Bible during the Exodus, and the spies are sent into Jericho. They meet Rahab. She hides them from the governing authorities. She lies to the governing authorities. She like creates the rebellion that eventually brings down the governing authorities. So 
she has to make this choice between can we, sh- should I serve the governing authorities or should I serve God? She's in this dilemma, which does she choose? She makes the faithful choice. She chooses God. So I think the point counterpoint that you're talking about in Shakespeare, like you find it even within the scriptures, you know, the apostles are after Christ's resurrection are being persecuted and their defense is, you know, we've got to follow God. We can't follow the rule of man here. So I think that that point counterpoint might be frustrating sometimes for those who are first encountering Shakespeare, because it's exactly as you said, Heidi, he really does present these antithetical arguments and positions. And you really want to be able to settle by settle on one. It feels like peace lies there. But I think part of the promise of teaching Shakespeare is that wisdom lies in the exercise of navigating between these, this point counterpoint. I remember my dad and I were having a discussion. My dad's a, like just a really exemplary Bible scholar. And he said something that always stuck with me that um, in the Bible, two positions are often presented. And the key is to be able to embrace both of those and life is lived in the wisdom between those two seemingly antithetical poles. Like, should we be like Rahab who undermines the existing authority in favor of like protecting these men of God? Or do we listen to Paul's exhortation in Romans 13? Let everyone be subject to the governing authorities. You have to embrace both of those. And you have to live in the kind of tension between both of those. And life is navigating between these two things in a way, in the way of wisdom. That just seems to me like, and Shakespeare seems to really offer this in every single play that he puts forward. He doesn't give you a simple, he doesn't say, here's the answer. Here's the conclusion of the story. And that's the answer. No. Mm -hmm. Right. Well, and he gives us one of the ways I think, I love what you're saying. One of the ways that Shakespeare uh, allows his audience to linger in the tension is by giving us characters who feel that tension, right? You've got Bolingbroke on one hand, he feels no tension. He wants, Mm -hmm. he he comes in here in act two and his claim is that he wants his patrimony, which is taken from him by the king uh, for an, in a completely illegal manner. Even in England, we do have the divine right of kings, but we also have the rule of law. And the rule of law states that you cannot take a noble's lands and money unless they have committed high treason. And there's no claim in the play that either John of Gaunt or Bolingbroke, Bolingbroke has committed high high treason. Mm-hmm. He's been banished for a different crime. So Richard has no right to take it. And York pleads with him. York, his uncle, pleads with him, don't do this. You are going to lose a thousand hearts if you take this, if you, if you take Gaunt's, if you take John of Gaunt's money. Um, and he just does it anyway, right? Because he needs the money to finance his Irish war. And the, the situation is too. It's, it's just too serendipitous for him. He can't resist. So he takes the money and, and 
Uh, back comes Bolingbroke within a short amount of time. It was about four months in the real historical record, but it seems like Shakespeare kind of condenses that timeline and it makes yeah. it seem like like a week later, here's Bolingbroke with all these nobles, right? Um, yeah. Who have flocked to his side. So, and of course the nobles have flocked to his side because they're, to, to York's point, they're threatened now. If the king can just come in and claim divine right and start taking money like willy-nilly from all of these rich men, he has way overstepped not only the law, but now he's a threat to all the people of power in England. And ever since the Magna Carta, that's the big question is how does a king keep the nobles in line and still maintain his power? Um, and, and it's a tricky business to do such a thing. And it takes a wise man and Richard's not a wise man. Um, so along comes Bolingbroke back from France and he's made friends in France, powerful friends. Uh, and now he's got the nobles who are freaking out that Richard's going to come take their money to finance this Irish war. And so what we have then, uh, to kind of circle, bring this conversation full circle is now we have characters in the play, namely York is the biggest one because now John of Gaunt's dead. And so we have York who doesn't know what to do. And you brought him up earlier as being, you know, he, he claims to be neuter. He's neutral yeah. in this. Um, but, you know, technically he can't be neutral. His heart is neutral. And that's what he's trying to say. That's what he's trying, saying here in, in scene three is, please don't kill me um, mm-hmm. as you gain power. But I, please understand that I cannot commit treason against the king, and he has ordered me to put down this rebellion. So here yeah. I am in the north, um, half-heartedly raising troops, but I'm mad at the king too, but like I have to fight for him. Yeah. Um, or else I might get dead, like I might get beheaded. I might, I, I might meet the same fate as Gloucester. Which is, yeah. I think, why the play opens with Gloucester, is we see what's at stake for these really powerful noblemen like York who are in this impossible situation. And so through characters like York, who vacillate back and forth, can't make up their mind, try to cover their bases, um, and, and truly are, you can see with York, he's, he's actually trying to do the right thing. He's thinking through the ethical the ethical questions, mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. and he cannot resolve them. And I think that's where we get the point counterpoint question. At some point, every character in a Shakespearean history has to take a side. Yeah. Or, or die in the, yeah. you know, or, or die vacillating. But York is often painted, I think, by, by many commentators and audiences as being this vacillating character, this weak character, which in a sense is true. On one hand, it's true. But I think literarily, he presents uh, kind of the dilemma you're talking about, the inability to take a thesis and an antithesis and create a synthesis out of it. He can't do it because the, the yeah. questions are too big. Um, and so if you can't make a synthesis, then you have to pick a side. And I think that's where we see the play progressing towards here in act two. Heidi, one of the things I want to mention while we're on this theme, which we're never going to leave the theme of kind of this metaphysical plot, is it, can you take the crown from a divinely appointed king? Is that there's not just stakes for the characters, like York, like Gloucester, like John of Gaunt. But there's also stakes for the whole cosmos. And what I mean by that is Shakespeare in this play, now it's also in Macbeth or glimpses of it in Hamlet, when the king or when some, yeah, 
when a king is taken from his throne, something happens in the cosmos. Shakespeare seems to imply this or state this even directly, that the entire cosmos begins to kind of shake and become unhinged in a way. So I was thinking, um, let me just take you back to Macbeth for a second. In Macbeth, there's a good king on the throne. Macbeth is his loyal subject. And then Macbeth, near the beginning of the play, hears from these three witches that he one day will become king. And Macbeth, for the first time, starts entertaining questions, starts entertaining doubts about his loyalty to the king, starts entertaining the possibility that he should kill the king in order to occupy that throne. There's a wonderful, incredible speech in which Macbeth steps out from the castle where the king is visiting him. And he's planning to go kill the king. And as he plans to go kill the king, he looks out from his castle wall into nature. And let me just describe what, let me just read for you the lines. Nature starts to come unhinged. Now or the one half world, nature seems dead and wicked dreams abuse the curtain sleep. Witchcraft celebrates pale Hecate's offering and withered murder, alarmed by his sentinel, the wolf, who howls his watch. Thus, with his stealthy pace, with Tarquin's ravishing strides toward his design, moves like a ghost. Thou sure and firm-set earth, hear not my steps, which way they walk, for for fear thy very stones will prate of my whereabout. Macbeth is on his way to kill the king and he kind of says to the earth, don't pay attention to what I'm doing because you, the earth, are going to rebel and the stones of the earth are going to begin to prate and make noise and kind of give away this awful deed that I'm doing. Same thing, we see the same thing in Richard II. So late in Act Two. We have a king reporting that they think Richard II, sorry, we have a captain reporting that a lot of the soldiers believe Richard II is dead. Here's what the captain says. Tis thought the king is dead. We will not stay. The bay trees in our country are all withered and meteors fright the fixed stars of heaven. The pale-faced moon looks bloody on the earth, and lean-looked prophets whisper fearful change. Rich men look sad, and ruffians dance and leap, the one in fear to lose what they enjoy, the other to enjoy by rage and war. These signs forerun the death or fall of kings. It's so... I, I... This aspect of Shakespeare's view of the world, of the Elizabethan view of the world, I am so late in arriving to it. I have read so much Shakespeare, and I would get glimpses of kind of this, how heaven and earth are conjoined in this sort of harmony of integrity, that when a king is taken from his spot on the throne, it's kind of like taking a linchpin out from the machine and it all becomes wobbly and clattery 
and ceases to function the way that God intended it. And yet, on the other hand, Shakespeare also like brings to us this possibility that like the king's anointed might also be just a really bad guy, a lack of integrity, harming his subjects who he was anointed to rule. It's just, it's, it's, it's a source of just endless fascination and intrigue for me, Heidi. Mm-hmm, me too. That's why I love the history plays so, so much. And I find them actually remarkably easy to teach. Once you give students, I think even just a lecture is fine on this. Just give them a background, ask them, you know, ask them the ethical question and then give them either the philosophical or the historical background so that they can re-engage then with the question with a new perspective. And you can see Mm -hmm. them work through that. And then, and then just asking them, what ought York to do here? What should he do? Yeah. That should question is so powerful because it forces them to, to reckon with the same questions that they were in their time. Um, you know, think about it and I'll say to my students all the time, answer the question, what, what should York do here? Right. And then, and then they say it, you know, think like a modern, what should he do? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Right. And then, but here's some more information. Here's some historical context. Here's some philosophical context. Here's how they think differently than us. Now, what should he do? Ask the same should yeah. question again. And then you have the students kind of wrestling with the fact that there's other perspectives in the world other than theirs. And that this play is, is complex, but its complexity is an asset, not a liability. Yeah. And, and because it gives, and students love, they love to talk about their opinion. Who asks a 12 year old their opinion or a 15 year old their opinion about something? If you can get them talking, get them engaged with this question, get them thinking through, now that I know this information, I might have a different answer. Now they're thinking in a sophisticated way, which is what Shakespeare's inviting us to do. I find the history plays are easier to do that in. In fact, to your point about, I'm glad you brought up Macbeth because in Macbeth, it's really clear Macbeth ought not to do this. Duncan's a good king. There's all these signs going Mm -hmm. on, right? So the should questions in Macbeth are very different than they are here, even though it's a very similar kind of plot. And that's curious, right? Because then you start saying, how is that? If if they're familiar with, with Macbeth, then you can even get the Shakespearean canon talking to itself right? How is Richard and Bolingbroke, how are they different from Macbeth and Duncan, right? And then you've got another like very rich nuanced conversation. And and this is what I love about Shakespeare and find, I know lots of people are intimidated by teaching Shakespeare, but I think if you have a few simple tools and an understanding of the text, it's easier to do than you'd think. And so I'm going to recommend right now, before I forget, a resource for the history plays, particularly actually, this is a great one for all Shakespeare, but for the history plays, it's particularly helpful. Um, it's uh, a book by Isaac Asimov, the uh, science fiction writer, and he wrote Asimov's Guide to Shakespeare. It's a really thick book, and it takes on these historical contexts. You know, Tim, you're holding up the very same one. Um, every, you know, this is one of those must-have Shakespeare library finds. It gets less into the interpretive questions than other Shakespeare commentaries Mm -hmm. and more into the historical context, which is so, so helpful with the history plays and many of the tragedies. Um, And this goes, this has two parts to it. It takes on the Roman plays and the uh, the plays of antiquity um, and then also the English history plays. Um, And so if you have this in your library, um, 
it's it's a lot easier to teach uh, and to and to read for yourself these um, these history plays. I don't even recommend reading them before you go see a performance, just to kind of get if you're going to go see Richard the Third or Henry the Fourth and you don't know the historical context. This can really help ground you in that, so that you can engage in those interpretive questions with a little bit more background. And Isamov's um, book can usually be found in most used bookstores that have some volume because it's mm-hmm. popular. Um, it's a little it's bit older, so it doesn't have, yeah, it's very mm-hmm. accessible and it doesn't have the kind of cost of being cutage, cutting edge. So you can probably find a very affordable edition on your used, your local bookshelf. Perhaps you could even order it from Goldberry Books mm-hmm. in Concord, North Carolina. If you're new to the show, we're openly plugging our friend David Kern uh, and his wife Bethany's new bookstore. That was just an open, shamefaced plug. Yeah, I mean, unashamed. Un- unashamed-faced? Unashamed. Barefaced. Just like, yeah, just go skip Amazon, go to bookshop.org, uh, find Goldberry Books and order your books through there. It's just exactly the same as ordering it from Amazon. Um, It might take an extra day or two, but it'll get to you and you'll be supporting local bookstores, specifically David Kern, the creator um, of this show, actually. So definitely exactly right. Heidi, um, we're now an hour into the show and I'm going to ask you to help me present a very brief plot overview of act two, which seems like a little bit backwards that we're giving the plot (laughs) this late. Um, The opening scene in act two is best known for the speech that you heard at the top of the show, John of Gaunt's speech in defense of and in praise of England. Um, After John Gaunt is escorted from the stage, he's in very, he's very old. He's moved off the stage. We meet Richard II's queen for the first time. The queen is very worried because the king is gone and she's of course worried about his safety. Some of uh, Richard II's men come in to reassure her, hey, it's all going to be fine. Richard II is going to be just fine. Richard II soon thereafter hears of the death of John of Gaunt and, you know, what little pity I had for, for Richard II kind of flew out the window when he heard of John of Gaunt's death. I wish I had the text of his response directly in front of me. He just he kind of gives some word lands of, right away. Yeah. He has like a couple words of warning and then he's like, but you know what? We're about to go attack Ireland. Let's go ahead and get that money in that land. You know, I mean, like just, and Gaunt played a role in his life. That was something like an uncle. Mm-hmm. So, if he turns that quickly away from any sort of mourning toward the kind of desire for lucre, we're getting a picture into Richard II's mindset ahead of his attack of Ireland. Meanwhile, he's in Ireland and England is beginning to kind of rip in half. You get the loyal subjects of Richard versus those who are falling in line under Bolingbroke. Bolingbroke, who was exiled in the first act of the play, is now returned, and he is amassing not just a fortune, but he's also amassing foot soldiers. And there's a little bit of a question of Mm -hmm. And nobles. So he's building an army, and there's no other purpose that he could be building an army for other than to take Richard II off the throne.
throne but and presumably make himself the king. Right. Which, to your point, I'm sorry to interrupt. You're exactly right. No. That is coming. But in Act 2, his only, and I think this is important clarification, his only claim in Act 2 is that he wants his patrimony, which has been taken from him illegally by Richard. So he's saying, I'm not going for the throne. I am just here to get my inheritance which has been taken from me unlawfully. There's plenty mm-hmm. of hints, even, you know, there's plenty of hints that he does want the throne, but at this point he's not openly claiming that. Yeah. 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 It's not overt yet, but by the time we get to the end of act three, we'll know what Brooks' intentions were. Um, but that is a discussion, Heidi, for a subsequent That's episode, right. the Act right. 3 episode. It's next week. Um, so, Heidi, I'm going to ask you in a second, what are the things that we should look for looking forward to Act 3? I'm going to begin with one now. I'm actually going to give a couple, a couple of questions. Um, I think readers, listeners, viewers of the play should pay attention to the curses and the prophecies in the play. There are curses and prophecies in every Shakespeare play. This one is larded with them. There are so many. And I think it's important to kind of think of those curses and prophecies in light of this second plot, the metaphysical plot. What would it mean to call down a curse? What would it mean to give a prophecy in this cosmos that is contingent upon having God's anointed on the throne. Second question, we might not talk about this one until Acts 4 or 5, is what's Richard II's political ideology? If Bolingbroke is sort of the pragmatist, the Machiavellian, well, is Richard II Machiavellian also? Or does... Does he have a different political ideology? So those are the two questions that I would ask listeners or readers to look for going forward. What are the importance of curses and prophecies? And does Richard have a political ideology? Heidi, something to look forward to in Act 3. Yeah, um, I'm glad you brought up the question of prophecies. Uh, We do have... um, his wife, who plays a bit of a Caesar's wife, a bit of a ref, you know, reference over to Julius Caesar when Caesar's mm. wife says, "Do not go to the um, do not go to the Senate today," and he, you know, Caesar doesn't listen to her, and then he dies. So she's this, mm-hmm. you know, kind of uh, many hundreds of years later, if someone is you know, prophesying something. They're sometimes even referred to as being like Caesar's wife, and we have here Richard II's mm-hmm. wife who plays this role of Caesar's wife too. She knows something's coming. Um, and she, she says she feels it far beyond just Richard's, um, uh, him, him being gone and being at risk. Um, the one thing I do want to point out is that we have, a, this, these are, this is the first in a tetralogy. Richard II um, is the first play of a group of four plays. And each of these plays stands alone. You can just watch one and it's brilliant. Every, every one of them stands alone. But they're also intended not only as standalone plays, but as um, 
as a tetralogy. They belong together. Mm -hmm. And Richard is the kickoff, right? It's the first one. Um, and so in Act Two, we meet a very, very important character, Northumberland's son, who is called Henry Percy here and is later going to be known in subsequent plays uh, in the next play, Richard the Fourth, Part One, as Hotspur. And Hotspur. Hotspur. Yes, Hotspur is a very, very, very main, main character uh, coming up. But here we get to meet him as a young man. Now, in real life, he was about 35 years old at the time of this, of, of, of Richard II. Um, but Shakespeare does something really clever here. Um, and he makes him a young teenager uh, who has... Uh, who has not yet proven himself in battle. And, and what we have in act two is he, in scene three, is he declares himself for Bolingbroke um, because his father, who was present at the John of Gaunt speech and saw all of this take place in, in act two, scene one, and has now chosen a side as York refuses to do. And Northumberland has declared for Bolingbroke. Um, and has gone to join him because of what he saw. He saw uh, Richard take these lands illegally um, and doesn't want it to happen to him. And so he is now in the company of Bolingbroke, and so is his son. And his son declares for Bolingbroke, um, and that's about the biggest role he plays here in this play. But it's really, really important because he becomes such a main character in the subsequent plays in the tetralogy so just watch mm. out for that if you keep going and know it's a standalone play but that it's not a throwaway scene Shakespeare doesn't actually have throwaway scenes uh, this is important because we're meeting him and seeing kind of the beginnings of his his character um, here as being this kind of like hot-headed young man who immediately declares his loyalty in the presence of his father to, to a rebel and that becomes then a, a kind of determined what comes next in for Hotspur, or as he's called here, Henry Percy. Very good. I want to remind everyone that you can participate us in this conversation over these plays and also over the books that we're reading on the flagship show, which is called Close Reads. Easiest way to do that is if you're on Facebook to join the Close Reads discussion group. You can also find us on Instagram and on Twitter at Close Reads Pods by email. If you ever want to email us a question, we love to get questions from listeners. Um, and you can find us at Close Reads Podcasts at gmail.com. And of course, you can sign up for our email newsletter at closereads.substack.com. We are thrilled that you joined us for Act Two of Richard II. Stay tuned next week for Act 3 of Richard II. And until then, we wish you a happy Thanksgiving and happy reading. Hold up. 
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.